Welcome to the Veterans Access Podcast, where it's our mission to catalyze VA engagement to support families and bring veterans all the way home. The Veterans Access Podcast assists veterans navigating the VA system with detailed guidance in order to obtain the benefits that you've earned. After two decades of war, our veterans and their families are challenged by an unprecedented strain on their mental, emotional, and physical health. And the VA is struggling to keep up with the demand for claims processing. So the UDT SEAL Association has sponsored this educational program to help you successfully engage at every step in your journey through the VA system. Our first series, The SEAL Advocate, Guiding Veterans to Their VA Benefits, was produced by Dr. Jeff Jennis, who is a former Navy SEAL officer and VA Raider, the Director of Outreach and Education, and a VSO for the UDT SEAL Association, as well as a chiropractic physician and acupuncturist. And it's also co-produced by me. My name is Stacey Whitcomb. I am a podcast producer, civilian, and acupuncturist who treats individuals recovering from service-acquired injuries, illnesses, and trauma in a highly specialized clinic that serves emergency responders. I want to share with you a few extremely important details before we launch into this episode. First of all, we will be talking a lot about the workbook, forms, VSO organizations, and other references. Those all can be found in the show notes or at veteransaccessproject.org. Again, that's veteransaccessproject.org. I also feel that it's really important to mention that if you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, please connect with the Veterans Crisis Line. There are qualified and caring responders that are available for confidential help, and many of them are veterans themselves. This service is private, free, and available 24-7. You can connect by calling 988 and selecting number 1, or you can text 838-255. Lastly, I want to give my own personal heartfelt gratitude and personal thanks to you for your service. Thank you for the sacrifices that you've made for protecting us and defending our rights and for all of the burdens that you've carried. Now, on with the episode. Hey, veterans, welcome back. Before we launch into this episode, let's make sure that you're in the right place. You're finding yourself on the fifth episode in a series of five where my co-host, Jeff Jennis, and I are helping you access disability benefits in a streamlined manner. In this episode, we're going to share special programs and considerations for reserve veterans, combat veterans, and severely disabled veterans programs. Really quickly, though, I want to give a recap of the episodes in case you're looking for something else. In the first episode, we covered the background and purpose of the VA and its compensation programs. In the second episode, we covered the 526EZ application. In episode three, we explained how to navigate the VA examinations and how to file for additionally qualified programs. In the fourth episode, we discussed the specifics about the appeals process. Okay, listen closely as I give a brief rundown of today's topics. Just like the other episodes, each of these topics are detailed in the workbook, and the links to all of the forums are on the website at veteransaccessproject.org, and they're also going to be in the show notes. And you're going to find those on the workbook page. So today, we're going to cover VA healthcare, VA Guaranteed Home Loan Program, CRSC, or Combat Related Special Compensation, Special Consideration for Reservists, VA Pension, Additional Compensation for Dependents, Chapter 31 Education Benefits, formerly known as Voc Rehab or Vocational Rehabilitation, Schedule A as in Alpha Appointments, Service Academy Nominations, 
home renovation grants for veterans, auto adaptations, benefits available to surviving family members, such as accrued benefits, funeral benefits, DIC benefits, and survivor's pension. Let's bring Jeff on. Hi, Stacy. How are you doing? I'm awesome. How are you? Hey, I'm doing really great. It's great to be with you. Is there anything that I missed that you want to talk about before we start? No, I think that you hit most of it. This episode really gives an introduction to uh, several of the special programs available to our nation's veterans. Not each veteran, they won't qualify for each program. And we'll try to explain who will qualify so that then they can apply for the appropriate programs. All right. Well, let's start with VA healthcare. Yeah. VA healthcare, just so we're clear, is a very different and separate benefit from a lot of what we've been discussing so far. A lot of what we've been discussing is, you know, monetary compensation from the Veteran Benefits Administration. And when we start talking about VA healthcare, that's a totally different department. That's the Veterans Health Administration. Veterans are qualified for VA healthcare. And it used to be that you had to hit a certain percentage in order to be qualified for VA healthcare. But now, after they recently passed the PACT Act, um, all veterans that are exiting service are eligible for VA healthcare. Now, there is still some priority groups based on the percentage of service-connected disability, and those priority groups may dictate whether there's a copay or whether or not um, they bill your third-party insurance, those kind of things. And so we have those listed in the workbook. And just understand that there are some recent changes based on the PAC Act. If you're a veteran, definitely apply for VA healthcare and sign up through an enrollment process. You'll talk to a VA enrollment specialist at the nearest Veterans Health Administration facility that's near you. So when you first were started talking about this and you said that originally VA healthcare was only offered to people with a certain percentage, what are you talking about with percentage? You mean a percentage of disability? Yes. Yes. When they when their overall disability rating used to need to be 20% or more, but now that has been reduced all the way down to uh, 0% or just the fact that they have previous honorable service. Okay. Well, now let's talk about the VA Guaranteed Home Loan Program. Yes. And this is a program, again, that is available to all veterans. So if you're a veteran, you can apply to the VA. You apply for what they call a certificate of eligibility. And we have this form on the website. It's VA Form 26-1880. You fill out this form, you'll most likely provide a copy of your DD-214 with it. Um, you should have a member copy, at least, that was provided to you upon discharge. If not, you can also request one from the VA. But you will submit that form, and then they will send you this certificate of eligibility. You use that certificate with your banking professional, and when you go to the bank, you'll give them their certificate of eligibility, and then they will know that you qualify for certain VA mortgage loan programs. And what those programs usually are, are reduced application fees, not altogether free sometimes, but reduced for sure and sometimes eliminated. 
And then also they usually have reduced interest rates and sometimes reduced documentation requirements. Okay. Um, Combat-related special compensation, CRSC. Yeah, the combat-related special compensation is really a new program, relatively new. I mean, 10 years old or so. But it really, you have to understand the history of the VA programs to understand why they came up with this program. And so previously, and still, this could be an option for some of our listeners and some of our veterans, when you retired from the military. So that means that you have 20 years or more of active duty service and you retired from the military. If you were in the reserves, you had 20 years of reserve time. And then that retirement actually doesn't pay or kick in until you're age 62. But you can end your service as long as you had 20 years of reserve time, and then you would get a retirement at age 62. Either retirement When you retired, you're getting paid from the individual service that amount, which is usually 50% to 75% of your base pay. In addition to that, you might have made a claim to the Veterans Administration and they might have come up with a disability rating for you and they might have then decided that they were going to pay you a certain amount. Well, in the past uh, and even currently, you're not allowed to accept both of those payments from the VA and from the individual service because it's double dipping with the federal government. But what they would do in that case was they would make the retirement pay tax-free for an amount equal to what the VA compensation would have been. So it was a way that you would still get a benefit and you so you would still basically get your retirement pay, part of it be tax-free based on your VA rating. For our retirees that have been in combat, this program was developed. And so what this program does is it allows you to get paid your full retirement and also get paid an amount equal to your VA compensation. Both of them end up being paid by the service as kind of part of your retirement package. And that's why this one's called a special compensation. And the first part of it is combat-related. So it's combat-related special compensation. So there are some different categories that need to be met in order for this special compensation to be paid. Basically, the things that are covered under this umbrella are first, any injuries that occurred during combat. So that means that you would have likely gotten a Purple Heart for these injuries. But if you were directly injured in combat, any type of penetrating wounds or any type of injury during combat or injuries that were a direct result of combat, maybe you got injured during the combat operation and then you reported to medical afterward, but it was directly related to those combat operations. And then also, if you were simulating or training for war, though any injuries that occurred during that period of time also counts, and any injuries from hazardous duty whether they be flight, diving, parachuting, demolitions, any of those kind of things, or if you were injured by an instrument of war, which means that you could have been in a tank accident, but you also could have just been in a motor vehicle accident with a military vehicle, and that could have been also could have qualified you for this compensation. The one thing that I will mention is that usually 
illnesses or other genetic things are not considered combat related, even if they occurred during active duty service. One that comes to mind is obstructive sleep apnea. Even though that person may have developed sleep apnea due to their service or during service, it doesn't relate to combat. And so it can't be used for this computation. And so I'll just finish this topic by really saying that after they fill out a form, the DD form 2860, it's on the website, they send that form off to their respective services. There's an address on the form. And then that service with their rating decision and any other medical information that they provide makes a decision on how much of the rating decision is combat related. And then they pay that amount. The remaining amount just goes as tax-free on the existing retirement. As a as a civilian question, I suppose this would be like, what about chemical warfare and finding out later that you have a chemical warfare-related illness? Is that considered? You're absolutely true, and that is considered. For example, if they had an exposure to Agent Orange, and that Agent Orange exposure, which has been presumptively linked to many health considerations, certain cancers and certain other respiratory problems and skin problems and all kinds of conditions. If that has been part of it and you were exposed to Agent Orange and then you developed one of these conditions later, yes, that would be considered combat related because you were exposed to that chemical during war. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you want to say anything else you have? Um, I think the only other thing that I would say is that in order to apply for the combat related special compensation, you must provide copies of the VA's rating decisions. So this is a program that you apply for after you've gotten your final VA rating decision. If you still have outstanding issues in front of the VA, whether they be new issues or issues on appeal, you should probably wait until those are finished before you apply for this so that you don't have to do it twice and it it doesn't get confused in the translation. Anything else? No, that's it. Let's talk about reservists. Reservists have a little bit more burden to prove that a condition is service-connected. The first reason is because their illnesses, for the most part, anything that that happened to their body that's an illness, you know, uh, wouldn't necessarily be covered by the Veterans Administration as a service-connected injury, unlike the active duty component, which any injuries or illnesses would be covered. So that's the first thing that's excluded on reservists. There are a couple of exceptions for that, heart attack and stroke, if you're traveling to and from your reserve duty. But the reservist injuries are still covered and still can be connected if they have a line of duty determination. That is a determination made by their reserve unit that says that that injury occurred while they were performing active duty for training in this case, and that it occurred in the line of duty, meaning that it was part of their honorable service and and that it was, even though they're a reservist, that that period of time can be considered active duty. And then the VA can consider that condition for service connection. Okay. Let's talk about VA pension. Well, now this is a program that I think is really, really in keeping with the mission of the VA, because 
what the VA pension is, is it is a payments to war era veterans. So you have to be a veteran of a war era. And that's not necessarily a combat veteran of a war or even a veteran during a particular campaign. It means that there's a particular era for each war, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and now the Gulf War. And the Gulf War era began August 2nd, 1990, if you can believe that, Stacy, And it extends all the way through December 31st, 2026. So it literally is a period of over 36 years of our country's history. And veterans of that era may be entitled to a VA pension, just like other war eras, they would be entitled to a VA pension if they're considered 100% disabled and they fall underneath certain income limits. So if you'll notice what I just said there, I just said that they were 100% disabled and they were underneath the, the income threshold set by the VA, but verified by the IRS. I did not say anything about service connection. So this disability does not have to be related to the member's service. They just have to be disabled and then the VA will give them some monetary compensation. And more importantly, they also will qualify for aid and attendance, which is some additional payments um, for uh, severely disabled veterans that can't perform their activities of daily living and care for themselves. So they'll get additional payments in order to have a caregiver. And they also would then qualify for some nursing home payments and placements. Um, and so this is really an excellent program that really takes care of veterans of war eras, no matter what the reason, whether it's service connected and can be proven that way, or if they're just disabled enough so that President Lincoln says, hey, we're going to take care of you. So if somebody later in life uh, is diagnosed with a horrible illness like ALS or something that's going to be progressively debilitating and they're unable to a perform activities of daily living but make a living as far as work then they're at risk of being homeless so so this is just a way of taking care of uh, aging veterans and keeping them from being homeless yes that's definitely true what you said is 100% true I want to correct one thing, though, is that Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, is always service-connected. That Just by definition, it is presumptively linked to mm -hmm. service, specifically to almost any service. So if the veteran has ALS, they need to make a claim with the VA, and it will be linked to their service. But I also just want to say that what you're saying is 100% correct. And I can use the example of my father for a VA pension. My dad got a VA pension and he was a Korean War era veteran. Um, he was a military policeman that actually served in Germany during that time. And then later in life, he developed dementia. And so that dementia was not necessarily related to his service, but he was 100% disabled. And so the VA helped him with a VA pension. And then they also helped him with some aid and attendance payments to help so that we could care for him at home for as long as we could, which was really fantastic for my family. Okay. I think I hope that we just helped somebody with that random ALS description too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. for sure.
Anything else on this? Oh, yeah. I do want to say that the application for a VA pension is a completely different form than for VA compensation. Even though they might seem to be similar and maybe even the veteran could have some issues that are service-connected, but then they also might qualify for a pension just based on their overall condition, but because they have other conditions that are not service-connected, but that brings them to 100%. So there's a separate form. It's a 21P-527EZ, and it's on the website, and they definitely need to fill out that form for pension. And that's a separate form, and in addition to the 526EZ if they have service-connected issues. Okay. All right. Let's talk about additional compensation for dependents. Well, what this is referring to is that if the VA has granted a disability rating of 30% or more to the veteran, then the VA will pay additional monthly payments for any of your dependents. And so it's a variable amount based on how many dependents that you have. And it's dependent is usually your spouse and then any children under age 18, or they could be up to age 23 if they're attending a post-secondary school. And also your parent could be designated as a dependent if they're disabled, but that is a separate process and it has a separate forms. And I definitely suggest that you contact a VSO if you need to claim a parent as a dependent because it's a little bit more lengthy process. For the regular dependents that you want to claim, and you should claim this if you have a rating of 30% or more because it's additional money that the VA expects to pay you to take care of your family. And that form is the form 21686C. There's also a separate form and a separate to claim a child if they're in school still. And that one, you have to basically fill out a, a dependent status form for your college age child. And that's a VA form 21-674. That's also on the website. So those are two forms that the veteran would fill out if they're 30% or more, and then they would get additional payments for their spouse, children, all the way up until possibly age 23. There's also this category called helpless child. And we probably should cover it because it's in the instructions on the 526EZ. And a helpless child is someone that's determined to be permanently disabled. So even though they're over age 18, they're going to be a dependent, usually for life. And so there's a separate form that you fill out for that. And the most important thing, if you're trying to claim a helpless child, is that that diagnosis needs to be made before they are age 18. If the diagnosis comes after age 18, then they won't be able to receive that designation and then you won't get paid for them as a dependent. But if they are basically helpless before age 18, then the VA will consider them to be a dependent for life. Um, moving on to Chapter 31 Education Benefits, formerly known as Voc Rehab or Vocational Rehabilitation. Yeah, now this is a spectacular program and definitely in keeping with the mission of the VA, which is employment. So this program is all about retraining the veteran to be able to be gainfully employed in a new line of work that doesn't aggravate their service-connected disabilities. Veteran 
can qualify for chapter 31 if they have at least a 10% rating from the VA and they're designated with a serious employment handicap. This is a rate, this is a designation that's done by a vocational rehabilitation counselor at the VA. If they have a 20% or higher rating, then they just have to have an employment handicap, which means some barrier to doing the employment that they were originally trained for. So there's definitely an application process with the VA and there's a evaluation process. So, but if a veteran has either 10 or 20% or higher rating and they're having difficulty performing their chosen profession or the profession that they've been trained in, they should definitely look into retraining through the VA and chapter 31. It's a fantastic program and you really have about 12 years after your date of discharge if you were discharged long ago. So for people that, you know, every, anybody that's discharged after 2013, then that 12 year rule doesn't apply. So really soon we won't have to be talking about that because as soon as we get to 2025, everybody will qualify. But really this is a great program that can pay for like a completely new college degree. It can pay for a job training program. It can pay for a vocational program. It can pay for all kinds of things as long as they're job-oriented and vocationally-minded. I think the only other thing that I'm going to mention about uh, Chapter 31 is that there is a separate form to fill out. It's on the website. It's VA Form 28-1900, and it's a very simple form to fill out. And the voc rehab counselors at the VA are excited to work with you and get you back to gainful employment. Great. Uh, let's talk about Schedule A appointments. Sure. Now, Schedule A appointments is an appointment authority with the hiring for federal jobs. And it's a hiring pathway for those with severe mental or physical disabilities. And so this pathway may or may not apply to our veteran audience. So if they have a severe mental or physical disability, which means that they probably have a higher disability rating um, with the VA, then they can get a letter from the voc rehab people. And this can basically state that they do have this employment handicap from their disabilities and they need that. And then I think also one from their doctor. And with that, they can then apply under the Schedule A and they can sometimes be appointed into these federal positions non-competitive. So they can be basically direct hired into these jobs. Cool. Uh, chapter 35, Education Benefits Dependent Education Assistant Program. Right. Now, the Chapter 35 Education Benefit, which is some kind called DEA or Dependent Education Assistance, that is for the families of our most severely disabled veterans. So if you're a veteran and you're 100% disabled for VA rating purposes, and that rating is what they call permanent and total. So a permanent and total rating is one that isn't expected to change. 
We've talked previously about temporary ratings with temporary 100% ratings, even with the VA for certain types of active cancers or convalescence after surgeries. But if you're rated 100% and it's expected to be, it's all based on permanent conditions and there's no scheduled VA re-examinations, then you will qualify for chapter 35 and they will make a note on your rating decisions that says you qualify for DEA chapter 35 education benefits. And what that means is that your family, which means your spouse and your dependent children are eligible for up to 36 months of payments if they decide to pursue some type of educational program. And that can be a degree program, such as a four-year bachelor's degree. It could be a non-degree program, such as some other educational program that doesn't lead to a degree. It could be a vocational program. It could be a job training program. It could be an apprenticeship program. It could basically be almost any kind of educational program that leads toward employment. They will pay you and they'll pay you based on full-time, half-time, or part-time attendance. And I think currently the payments are somewhere around for full-time educational or degree program or even non-degree program. I think it's about $1,400 a month. So it's really designed to basically cover in-state tuition at some school of, of higher learning and also cover the monthly expenses, or at least offset the cost of monthly living expenses. The form's on the website, and you could also submit that electronically, but you will need to submit it to, if you do a paper application to a regional office, and then you'll have to decide who's going to manage that program. It's also best to decide what program you want to go for first and then apply, because the first thing they're going to do is see if the program you want qualifies. And if you don't have a program in mind and um, are, don't have a pathway to it, then it's harder to get approved. Okay. Let's talk about service academy nominations. Yeah. Now, this one's a little bit near and dear to my heart because when I went to the Air Force Academy, I had to compete with everybody in my state for a nomination from either a senator or a representative in order to be considered by the academy. And those senators and representatives, each one of them are allowed 10 nominations and they're allowed to give those for any vacancies that they have at the academies. And they're each allowed about five attendees at any one time. So if they have an attendee that they've nominated that graduates, then they can nominate 10 more people to maybe fill their spot. So you can see how if every senator and a representative is making these nominations, there can be quite a number of people applying and it can be pretty competitive. And if you can't get through the nomination process, then you can't be considered at the academy. But for our veterans that are considered 100% permanent and total with their disability ratings from the VA, they are allowed to bypass the congressional nomination process and their children are allowed to apply to the academies and be considered by the Academy Selection Boards without a congressional nomination. So that's just another added benefit, an added educational benefit for the dependents of severely disabled veterans. And so are you saying that you got 
accepted to the academy because your father was 100% permanent and total? Actually, no. I competed for nominations and my state had two senators and a representative and I actually got a nomination from all three of them. I don't know what to say. You know, in all honesty, it was due to the fact that I had an early appointment to the academy. So they had basically already looked at my record and they said, as soon as you get a nomination, we can select you. And so I had that going into the nominating process. So all of them wanted to select me because I was already in. Ah, and how old were you? How old is this a situation of? That, for the academies, that's a great question that you asked because it happens very early. And so this process happens when you're a junior in high school. You do all of the uh, applications when you're a junior and you find out probably winter of your, maybe fall or winter of your senior year. And so then you go from school to the academy directly. You graduate from high school and then go to the academy directly. Yes, that's right. Mm. Cool. Congratulations. 40 years later. I mean, excuse me, (laughs) 32, 20 years later. No, it's so many years. We can't (laughs) even count. Okay. Home renovation grants for veterans. Yeah. So there's several of these. And it really depends on what you're trying to do and what your service-connected disabilities are. So just definitely read the workbook for each of the separate categories on these. But what you should understand is that the VA is willing to pay to either buy you a home that is accessible to you, and they're not going to pay for the whole amount, but they're going to definitely pay for up to a large portion of it. And they're also willing to modify your existing home if you need some some adaptations due to your service-connected disabilities. Now, I want to state that the largest grants here, they're quite large. They can be up to $150,000 for the specially adapted housing grant. Now, in order to qualify for that, it's not just any service-connected disabilities. These are severely disabled veterans that you know, usually are para or quadriplegics. They might have ALS and they might have burnt, be a burn victim or have blindness in both eyes. So those are the kind of things that we're talking about. And there are very specific qualifying categories. But for the next category down, there's still some very restrictive qualifying categories. But as we keep going down the list, and by the way, you can apply for a grant, even if it's not your home. So if you need to modify the home of a family member, in order to be accessible for you, they will still consider that. Even but if you don't live there? Even if you don't, offic- well, it's then you don't officially live there, but you, you might spend a, a good portion of your time there because maybe they're your caregiver, mm-hmm. but you don't own that home. But even if it's not your home, they'll still pay some amount to maybe um, to, to modify it, especially if it's like temporary residence, like you're coming recovering from a surgery or something. Um, and then I just want to get down to kind of like, the lowest category, which is kind of what we call home improvement and structural alterations. And real, you just need to get a letter from your healthcare provider justifying the need and then fill out this particular form, a VHA form 10-0103, which is on the website. And they will consider if they can assist you with some monies toward modifying your home. And, you know, it might just be $2,000 or something to put in grab bars or to install a a wheelchair ramp or something like that. But if, if it's 
reasonable and it's based on a service-connected disability, they will certainly consider it. And they have adjudicators that do nothing but look at this kind of work and then oversee the contractors that perform the work. And then similarly, there's auto adaptations as well. Yeah, that's right. And that's because the VA wants you to be safe driving, of course, and they don't want you to have some kind of an accident because, you know, your service-connected disability prevented you from driving safely. So they have grants. This is also specifically if you have loss of one or both hands or your feet, significant loss of vision in your eyes, severe burns, possibly ALS. We know that ALS kind of degrades all neuromuscular function. So because of that, you might need special steering and or braking and or other features on your vehicle. So they can provide a grant for the purchase of a new vehicle, and they can also provide a grant to modify an existing vehicle for that. One thing that I will want to definitely point out to veterans that if you're going to apply for the grant for the purchase of a vehicle, you have to fill out the form and apply ahead of time because they will only provide this, the grant money. They will only pay the seller. They won't pay it to you so that you can then buy the car. They'll only pay it to the seller of the car that's selling it to you. So you have to set that up ahead of time so that they can then provide the grant to either the, the auto dealer or maybe even private party that's, that you're purchasing the vehicle from. The other thing that to mention is that some of these grants for an adaptation can be for things that are like, if you have a leg problem and you need power brakes, or you have an arm problem and you need power windows, or you need a lift, or you need power steering, those are all different types of things, different seating arrangements. Those are all different types of things that the VA could grant you money to modify your vehicle and make it safer for you. Granted, it's not just maybe some of the minor things, it's more for the major things that affect drive. Great. Uh, let's talk about benefits available to surviving family member. Um, and we'll start with accrued benefits. Yeah. Now, the benefits available to the surviving family members, this goes back to really the origins of the VA because the VA really is intending to take care of the veteran's family even after they're gone. And especially if the veteran died in combat or if they died due to military service, or if they died of a service-connected disability. In any case, the VA has many benefits for deceased veterans uh, and their families because they want to provide the veteran's honor, and they want to take care of the veteran's family so that the veteran has peace of mind both while they're alive and that the family is taken care of after they're gone. And so, like you mentioned, the first one is accrued benefits. And accrued benefits is any benefit that the veteran was owed at the time of their death that still needs to be paid. And so this could be for a VA claim that was in process or an appeal that was in process. Even a partial month's payment could be considered an accrued benefit. And so it's always best for the family. If their family member was a veteran, they should always apply for accrued benefits and also for funeral benefits. That's the next thing. Um, the funeral benefits are for an honorably discharged veteran that has a VA disability rating 
the VA will pay a one-time death benefit to offset funeral costs. And that's adjusted periodically. And this amount also is affected by what was the cause of death and where the death occurred, or if it happened in a VA hospital, or if it happened due to a service-connected condition. So the death benefit and the accrued benefits are something that the VA will write a rating decision on and provide to the family after the service member has passed away. And I should say, after the VA is notified of the service member's death, which the family should do immediately because they don't want to get into an overpayment situation if they're being paid after the the veteran is already deceased. And then, then also, there's other benefits that the family can apply for with the National Cemetery Administration, which is also a part of the VA, to be buried in a national cemetery or to have a marker in a national cemetery. All of those things are available even after years, you know, if they were never interred or never had a marker, they're still eligible for one if they're an honorably discharged veteran. Right. Okay. Let's talk about uh, dependency and indemnity compensation. Right. You said that really well, and it's a difficult thing to say. (laughs) It's usually referred to as DIC benefits, and I think most people don't even know what the DIC stands for. But like you said, it stands for dependency and indemnity compensation. This is payments that go to the deceased veterans, survivors, if they died from a service-connected condition. So DIC benefits would be payable to a surviving spouse or surviving child, dependent child, if the service member died while on active duty, if they died of a service-connected disability, or if they were considered to be 100% permanent in total at the time of death, and if they had that rating for 10 years, or if they had only had it for five years and it and they received their 100% rating immediately upon exiting the service, then their families and their surviving family members would be qualified for DIC benefits. So it's kind of a way for the VA to continue to pay the service-connected disability to the surviving family members. Now, I will say that it's not quite as much as they were getting paid before, but it is a, still a significant payment and it can offset a lot of a lot of living expenses and costs. And then the paperwork for that is also on the website. Yes. The paperwork for this one is, again, a totally separate form. It has a separate base form, which is the 21P534EZ. And that is specifically for DIC benefits. And so usually what happens is if the surviving spouse or a dependent is qualified for DIC, then they'll apply for DIC benefits, accrued benefits, and the funeral benefit all at the same time. If the family members are not qualified for the DIC benefits, I still think they should apply and let the VA make that determination. But if they decide not to apply for that, they should still apply for accrued and the death benefit. As soon as they notify the VA of the veteran's death, they will immediately start on that paperwork and they'll expedite it, of course. The last program that we really have to talk about is also similar, but different. And this is a survivor's pension. And this is if the veteran 
was a war hero veteran and they were in receipt of a VA pension, or even if they weren't, the surviving spouse, if their income is low enough, can apply for a survivor's pension and then they can get a pension and that can be, but the veteran would have had to been 100% disabled at the time of death, and it, but it doesn't have to be for any, any kind of reason. Okay. Yeah. It's a little bit more in depth than that, that I made it out to be, but the good news is that they have these limits on income and whatever you make, then they just subtract that from the limit and they pay you the difference. So it's kind of like they guarantee you to be at this certain income level, which is set by the IRS. Just to make note though, I've had surviving spouses that have had problems with the VA with survivor's pension because there are income limits. And so when survivors sometimes get to be a little bit older and then they apply for social security and they might even apply for their spouse's social security because that's a higher payment, but then they might take themselves out of uh, consideration for the survivor's pension because they make too much. And so it doesn't matter where the money comes from. It all just depends on the total amount of income. And I will also say that with the survivor's pension and even with a VA pension to the veteran in general, there are certain exclusions like your primary residence, your vehicle, and kind of basic appliances and necessities of life are not included in those computations. But there are like total net worth computations that you have to fall underneath. And then there's also income computations that you have to fall underneath in order to qualify for a pension, whether it be survivors or veterans pension. That was quite the list, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting again about programs and considerations in this episode. Is there anything else that you want to talk about to the veterans? I think the last thing that I would just leave them with is we did cover a lot of ground today, and there's a lot of programs that our veterans may qualify for. And we have taken kind of a broad topic approach where we're giving a little bit of information about each one of these programs, but there's a lot more information on the va.gov website um, that you can find all of these programs on and also on the veteransaccessproject.org website that you can go to and that where we have all the links to the specific forms that you need. And in the workbook, we have more in-depth discussion of each one of these topics. Additionally, I really want to recommend that if we start getting into some of the complex ones, then you really should contact a veteran service officer. And you can find one of those either as the, at the county veteran service officers or maybe at the DAV or any of these other service organizations that will provide somebody that will help you for free and they can just help you guide you through the process. And also thanks to the UDT SEAL Association. If you guys really appreciate this and you want to support the UDT SEAL Association, you can do that on the website as well. Yeah, please do. I mean, the UDT SEAL Association has been so supportive of this entire project. And really what they're doing is raising the bar for all veteran service officers and they're providing information for every veteran across the country. And so if you want to help that and pay it forward, then please make a donation so that we can continue programs like this because I got a lot more ideas for us to talk about. 
Awesome. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Jeff, again. Um, and again, if you guys have any questions or need any help, please reach out to us at veteransaccessproject.org. I want to give a special thanks to the UDT SEAL Association for their generous support of this project. If you found this information helpful and would like to support the project, please consider making a donation to the UDT SEAL Association at udtseal.org forward slash donate. You can also find that link in the show notes. Lastly, please follow the podcast and share it with other veterans to help them in their journey through the VA.